desperately need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. I'm Dave Debo. And I'm Thomas O'Neill White. After May 14th, how can we afford not to talk about race? About education. About segregation. About humanity. Since the dawn of this nation, racial violence has existed. The way we have designed our society has a big hand in what occurred in that Tops Market. The suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. We need to make sure that we put more funding in our programs that help prevent gun violence and more money into art. If we're going to have some real healing. We've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truths. I'm host Bridget Jaipal Valenza. Today we're here with Duncan Kirkwood. He is a veteran, a father, author, and motivational speaker who empowers others to develop psychological resilience. Duncan, thank you for joining us today. One of the principles you teach, we're going to get right into it, (laughs) right in. One of the principles you teach is resilience. Uh, We're going to hear a lot of that word in this hour. Um, What does that mean exactly? So resilience. So first, thank you for having me. Uh, I really appreciate the opportunity. I'm going to take these headphones off. I really appreciate the opportunity uh, to be here with you and have these conversations. Um, Resilience is about, you know, grit, uh, about the ability to persevere through difficult times, uh, and that's what uh, most people think of. They have this thought association where resilience means bounce back, right? Bounce back like a like a tennis ball will bounce back. That's mm-hmm. how you should be with tough times. But what I train people on when, when I talk about resilience is that resilience really means understanding that failures and setbacks, challenges are actually a part of your journey. So it's a mindset change that when you when you mess up or when it doesn't work out, or when you're going through something extremely difficult and you don't know if you can make it, Understanding that that thing that you're going through is actually helping you. That's why you can't quit. So some of the ethos I teach people that are, are you always put your goal first. You never accept defeat. You never quit. But that just means you know you're going to face challenges. You know you're going to face defeat. But you decide to keep going because you don't know how the story is going to end. Um, so, yeah. So that's kind of how I think about resilience. Why is it important to teach kids resilience? So, you know, it's funny you ask that because... I think with kids, when I went into the work of teaching young people to build resilience so they can, you know, persevere through school and difficult times so they can go to college or career or job or military and have a a better life, a more successful life. But as I'm dealing with more and more kids, I'm finding kids are already resilient. They just don't really know it. Right. And so they hide their setbacks. They they view them as shame. Mm -hmm. They feel like things they go through make them less than other kids. They live a life of comparison. And that's how they build their self-esteem is through comparison. So anything that's bad, they try to hide or or they, they push it away. And I'm trying to. So what I've started to teach kids is, no, you're already resilient. You've already been through storms after storms. You've already dealt with this and that and this. So you just have to understand that because you went through that, you're stronger. And now we need to identify that. So you own that power and redirect it in a way to create the life that you want. So with our young people, it's important because school is difficult, right? Especially if you're already two grades behind, if you already can't read on grade level. And as you move into different subjects, now 
you have to read at a higher level in order to learn. But you can't do that because you're having trouble reading or you're barely literate. So, yes, resilience is is important because it it helps them matriculate through school. But we got to understand that school and being successful in the classroom isn't just about grades. It's also about growing in character, growing in your belief for yourself and the life that you want, creating a a vision for what you want. So there are psychological impacts for and with resiliency in this method of self-help. Can you tell me about that? Yeah. So, you know, when you believe, when you, let me, let me just say it like this. Once you look at your life, if we all did that, if you, if anybody listening would just take a second, right. And you might be going through a hard time or you might uh, be dealing, you might say, well, why don't I have the promotion? Why am I still here? Or why am I not married? Or I didn't get, I, I don't have a bigger house or whatever it is for you. If you look back at your life, you take an honest moment and think, was there a time where you faced a really bad challenge or you went through something really difficult or it hurt in the moment? Mm -hmm. But then months later, you look back and say, I'm glad that happened because this. Right. Like I was in an abusive relationship and because I endured it and I got out of it. Now I'm with somebody better or because I had to fix my credit to get a home and it took years to fix it, but I worked and worked and worked. And when I finally fixed it, not only did I get a home, but I could open a business now because I had a better line of credit or whatever. Like if everybody does a reflection on a tough time you went through that actually led to something better, it will make you think the next time you go through a tough time, oh, wait, there's a thought association with tough time to something better. So, but okay, but you have to. But a few of our past guests have, have talked about certainly the need to be resilient. Um, But how particular is that a good thing? Because it means that the resiliency is rooted in trauma. It's rooted in experiencing trauma. Um, One could argue, certainly, that you could try not to experience that trauma, and then your resi- that is your resiliency, being able to avoid those things. But there are certain things in life that you can't avoid, right? Yeah. So that's a great, ma'am. That is a great point. All right. Let me let me start right. You know, like so. There, there, there's the con- and, and what you're saying is this concept that if we're telling our black communities or any, let's just focus on our black communities here. We're saying as a community, we need to be strong. We need to be resilient. Mm-hmm. Right. What you're saying is. We need to prepare to continue to be oppressed. Yeah, exactly. So, so why are we doing this? Exactly. And that is a thousand percent right. If you're telling our communities, we got to be resilient, y'all, we got to be strong. Then, in fact, you're saying prepare to continue to be oppressed, con- prepare to continue to be marginalized and just get better at dealing with being oppressed and marginalized. And that's not a healthy thing that we should have to live in, deal with. That's not you know, equal opportunity. That's not liberty and justice for all. That's not everyone gets a fair shake. That's right. That's, that's not that. And so maybe our, and some people would say our focus should be not trying to be stronger and more resilient, but dismantling the systems that are causing us to have to be oppressed. But I don't think it's a one or the other. I think it's a yes. And because 
in in a dream world, we are dismantling systems and we're totally transforming what it looks like to be black on the east side of Buffalo and grow up, which I did in the inner city in a poor neighborhood. Uh-huh. And we're we're working to tra- transform that. But that process is not overnight. That is a decades long process because it took hundreds of years to create the conditions in which we live in. So in the meantime, while we're trying to dismantle systems, People still are being traumatized over and over in every possible way. They're being traumatized in school. Then they have their own kids who are also traumatized in school. And now they're also having another bad you know, uh, situation with education. They're being traumatized at work. They're not getting opportunities. They're not getting promotions. They're being traumatized with housing and lack of access to quality housing and affordable housing. They're being traumatized health-wise. 14215. Everything that's bad that you can measure is the worst in New York State in 14215. Breast cancer, hypertension, infant mortality, asthma, et cetera, et cetera, education rates, crime, uh, crime statistics, murder rates. Everything is the worst in 14215. So we can say, like, hey, let's dismantle every system. But that's a 100 years battle, and let's do it. But in the meantime, 100 years of kids are going through systems and going through trauma, and they got to make it. We need to equip them with the tools and the mental toughness and mental agility in order to make it through these difficult times so that they can go get a job, go to college, go to the military, and then come back and help while we're trying to dismantle systems. They're building houses. They're hiring other black people. They're opening businesses. They're making our community safer because what makes a safer community is more access to jobs and better education, not just more policing. Right. But what happens if a person doesn't? exhibit the resiliency that you're calling for. I mean, not everyone is built that way. So I believe that resilience is something that can be learned. Some people believe that you're either born resilient or you're not. Um, I believe that people can develop resilience skills. So like when I train soldiers in the military, Mm -hmm. um, we have a way that we train soldiers and we start with the premise that everyone can learn to become more resilient. Um, Now, everybody's in a different place on, like, that scale of how resilient they are. But there are concrete tools. Like, they're in in our trainings. There are things you can do in activities and in in our workshops that if you do these activities, you will become more resilient. It's not a question. There's no question about it. Okay. Okay, So there are concrete things you can do to build resiliency. All right. And and if you do the activities daily, weekly, you will become more resilient. Now. That doesn't change the overall magic. It's not a magic wand that, oh, now I'm more, I've increased my level of resilience, so everything's all good now. I don't, no, still dealing with trauma, still dealing with strife, still dealing with tragedies. Time of tra- I was with these kids this weekend. One kid said, I had three brothers. All three of them have been murdered. Right? Wow. This is a 15-year-old wow. kid. He said, all three of my brothers have been murdered, and one was murdered in front of me. And so now... I'm afraid to go out the house because every so often someone will send me a picture of one of my dead brothers right after that they were killed. Right. And so this kid has to own that, wear that and consistently deal with the reminders and go to school every day. Right. So we can't just say to him, hey, we're trying to dismantle this system of oppression. So hang tight. Like, no, we need to arm this child with some type of support, some to get him with a therapist, help him build the thought processes to believe that he can be different. He can have more and at the same time work on dismantling it. So I don't think it's a it's an either or. Definitely not. You touched on the, the military and, and your training there and training other soldiers. Um, what brought you to the military? So I used to um, 
<laughs> my entire when I was in college, I was the elected student body president at my college, Alabama State University in Montgomery, Alabama. And so I was the student body president over 5,600 students. I was their leader. You know, I fought for students. And somewhere along the line, I started transitioning into local politics in Montgomery mm-hmm. um, because we had all these voters, all of these students. So issues that matter to us. We made it matter to the city. We end up suing the city of Montgomery to protect voting rights because at that time, former Confederate states couldn't move, make election changes without preclearance from the Department of Justice because they wanted to make they, they, the Supreme Court passed that decision because they didn't want Confederate states to you know go back to poll taxes, literacy tax, stuff like that. Uh-huh. And so our city changed the election date without preclearance from the Department of Justice. So we sued the city. I gathered with students and other community leaders to sue the city of Montgomery to protect them from voting. Now, they weren't trying to do anything nefarious. So ultimately, in the midst of our lawsuit, we're doing depositions. The Department of Justice just gave them preclearance. So it just kind of dismantled our whole you know thing. But what it did was it, it took me from a student who's looking at campus issues like, hey, let's get better housing or lower tuition to community issues to voter access issues and so in that moment i decided i'm going to be an elected official one day so i made choices in my life to build towards becoming an elected official so in my history in my study of history all great elected officials uh presidents congressmen are largely either lawyers uh former lawyers or attorneys or veterans and I didn't want to go to law school, so I decided to enlist and serve. And so in that service, what happened in 2012, we had more soldiers die from suicide than died in combat in Iraq and Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. And so the military really ramped up their suicide prevention and their resilience programs. So they trained junior officers like me to become master resilience trainers. And I would go to different units to help soldiers build their mental toughness and mental agility. How... Do you rectify serving a country that has consistently either tried to enslave or eradicate or continue to make policy against black people? How do you rectify serving that country? Yeah, so, you know, I I reject the premise of that question. And so, you know, to me, and and this is not towards you, because I've been asked that before. So this question, Mm -hmm. I want to be clear, this y'all radio show, right? (laughs) I am responding to this question, not you as a person. But that's a stupid question, right? Because you could ask that same question to a fireman. You could ask that same question to a nurse. You could ask it to you as a broadcast. You on a station. I know the owner of the station is white. I ain't did no research, and I know the person who owned this station is white, and I bet it's a white man, right? And so knowing that every system in our country has been built off of prejudice, has been built off of racism, has been built off of oppression, that question could be asked to literally anyone in almost any job that's not a self-owned business, right? And so I reject the idea that's like, oh, I'm serving the oppressor by volunteering to be in the army. First of all, I didn't go overseas to Iraq and Afghanistan. I didn't go to Russia. I served in the Army National Guard. So my duty was to protect the citizens of Alabama. So when a tornado ripped through Tuscaloosa, Alabama, me and my unit and the soldiers that I oversaw, we kind 
convoy with our Humvees and LMTVs to Tuscaloosa to pull people out of the rubble. We went there to pull security from the looters who were breaking into the houses the houses that have been broke down. We were the ones to bring water and food to the firemen and the airmen and the nurses that were there on the ground doing their job. I had to keep count accountability of hundreds of police officers, firemen, airmen, and volunteers. That was my job. I was responsible as the S1 for accountability. So the idea that, like, if you're in the military, you're, you know, reinforcing 1776's ideas of what freedom is or not is, but you're a broadcaster on a station working for a white person who benefited from slavery. You're, uh, or somebody else is a, journalists on a news station that's perpetuate the narrative that black men are vicious angry monsters right like the idea that any way you look at any part of this country has been fed and created by oppression but no the military is different no we all have a role to play and we all try to make where we are better so like when i went to my unit and when I transferred units, I moved from Centerville, Alabama, to uh, Tuscaloosa, Alabama, uh, and I had it, my brigade was there. I walked into the brigade, and there's a Confederate flag shrine. So there's like a like a, imagine like a big picture frame mm-hmm. on the wall, but instead of a picture in there, it's every Confederate flag from the Confederacy, like a collage of them, right? And I walked by, and I said, "What?" So I immediately called the IG of the Army the inspector general of the army and said, this got to go. So I walked in at 6 a.m. By 345, that shrine was gone. And every Confederate flag in the building that, you know, some people had on their hats or their book bags had been removed. So all we can do is do our best to serve other people and make every place we go a little bit better. The chairman of our board is a black man. Is it? Well, smack me in the face then. You know, not literally, obviously, but that... The point remains the same, you know what I mean? But that's, I mean, shoot, okay, WBFO, Toronto, all right, then. <laughs> Excuse me. But you get the point. Uh, and I understand what you're saying. Um, I think that, yeah, certainly, it's just this overarching view that um, you are in a, a body of employment there mm-hmm. that carries guns and will on occasion and has employed those guns against citizens of the United States. Not only citizens of the United States, but also maybe not your particular unit, but the military has gone abroad to go forth and and tell people and enforce, um, you know, the freedoms that we have, Mm -hmm. but not all of us have those types of freedoms. Not all of the people who might have been looting were doing so for any sort of monetary gain. They might have been looting because some self, their government has not provided what it is that they needed in that critical moment. So I'm not 100% sure that the apple-to-apple comparison that you're making. I mean, it's not an apples-to-apples comparison, and and that's a fair point. You know what I mean? But let's let's pick a different job. Let's say you're a fireman, Mm -hmm. right? Who appoints the fire chief? Ours is Common Council, I believe. The Common Council, right? So 
the common council or the mayor, I'm not sure, you know, I'm going to be honest with you, I'm not sure if it's the council or the mayor, but either one, they appoint the fire chief. That's all men. So with the same logic, because men typically over the years in this country have been oppressive to women, is that bad that you are now a fireman? And if you're a female firefighter, you're part of a machine that was is created and ran by men that have been oppressive in history. To, right. It's like, yeah, we can go down this road, but I'm not I didn't go overseas to uh, subjugate brown fire chief is a woman i know i know that no i, I know that you know um i didn't go overseas to subjugate point, brown people across the world in fact i have fought in almost every um, battle for justice since i have known about oppression in a real way since the genus six in louisiana i actually drove to louisiana and our students were on cnn because we were standing up for the genus six and every battle since then so you know, I didn't go overseas to oppress brown people in other countries. Uh, I'm not part of the militia groups that go across the South. That I'm not at board at the border as a volunteer army enforcing border control. Nothing. I served the people of Alabama and kept them safe. And I'm not going to apologize for it or in any way feel like you know that's a bad thing that I served my country. This country is not perfect in a lot of ways. In every possible way that I could think of, we can improve. But that doesn't mean that this country is the evil empire that we should all bring to the ground. Um, And so, you know, I serve my country proudly and with honor. Uh, In fact, this past weekend, one of my battle buddies uh, as as a retired Army captain, he came down to help me train the young men. So I have 50 young men we trained at Beaver Hollow from Buffalo. Um, black boys, and I had one of my army cat, one of my battle boys from the army. They actually came, they flew from LA to be here to train these young men, and we did use our military training, right? The same things we learned in basic combat training, we used those tactics to train these young men and build a brotherhood, and to build them to be leaders and to believe in themselves and be, and be confident. And so, you know, I, I appreciate the question because I think it's a good, it's a good and fair question. Um, but like I. Our country does need to be protected. Our citizens do deserve to have a, a military uh, that is strong and that, you know, listen, I don't dictate foreign policy. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of people in this country that benefit from white supremacy. There's a lot and black people and white people. There's a lot of people that benefit from oppre- the oppression of poor people, black people, white people, women. Poverty is a business. Right. And so whether it's a radio show that was born out of a catastrophe. And so now you all all of a sudden care about having a hour long radio show that discusses what's next in Buffalo and racism and oppression. Racism and oppression been in Buffalo since for hundreds of years since W.E.B. Du Bois came up here to try to start the, not to try to start a movement. But it was so racist. They had he had to go to Niagara Falls and start the Niagara movement, which then led to NAACP founded in 1909 because they asked them to come to Chicago. Right. Buffalo been racist since then, but ain't no show been them. But now that the Buffalo, you know, murder and this horrible tragedy happened, all of a sudden everybody's socially conscious. All of a sudden, everybody's got this urgency around giving voice to the community. Where was everybody at before then? Right. I, now I was there. Right. So in 2016, when I was part, when I led the Black Lives Matter chapter in Buffalo, Black Lives Matter wasn't sexy then. Like in 2016, Black Lives Matter was like, oh, they're terrorists. They're radical. 
Stay away. So some of these same black leaders that we got in the community, some of these same news networks we got in the community, they was like, oh, no, stay away. Black Lives Matter is terrible. It's bad. Da, 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 da. Right. The only rate, the only news network in 2016 that would consistently give us coverage was WBLK. And they will consistently give us a voice. Everybody else, are they too radical? Oh, Black Lives Matter. No, no, no. But then fast forward after the murder of George Floyd, everybody's Black Lives Matter. Companies got it on their Facebook banner. All, every radio station is like, oh, yeah, we got to include Black Lives Matter. People got yard signs for Black Lives Matter all of a sudden because it's trendy. It's cool at that moment. There's a moment and people are riding the wave of that moment. Now, that's not terrible because bringing awareness to an issue is a good thing. That's the idea of starting movements is to bring awareness. But let's not pretend like all like people aren't trying to capitalize off of what happened with the tragedy in Buffalo. And I don't mean capitalize like in a negative way, but capitalize off the moment to try to grow and do better. Right. So that's a good thing. But the same problems we got today, we had three months ago. We had seven months ago. We had four years ago. Where was everybody then? Where, you know what I'm saying? So the, absolutely. Know, I, However, if one talks about having allies in a movement. One has to gain them somehow. How do you gain an ally if your messaging and what has come before is not listened to? And then suddenly there is a galvanizing moment for a community, for a, a county for a city, for a country. Galvanizing movements and, excuse me, galvanizing moments are what bring people together to the table to say, this is a problem, it's clearly a problem, and it needs to be fixed. So without a galvanizing moment, you lose allies. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. And throughout history, we've seen like with the murder of Emmett Till, with all these other things, something big happens and then people there's a reaction to that. But that doesn't it doesn't negate it doesn't negate that that the people all were of those saying things were right, happening before. Right. And somebody says to you, Hey, this is a problem, y'all. This is a problem. We're telling you this is a problem. This is horrible. Right? These murders are happening in the holding center. We're telling you this is a problem. And you're like, Okay, cool. This, I'm sending the same press releases to the same news networks, right, at the same time. But all of a sudden, now we're responsive in a new way, right? And not you all, because WBFO actually has covered everything that we've ever sent them. Like Thanks. anything of substance that we've sent WBFO, they have said, if they can't be there, send us a write-up after the fact. Send us pictures, if they, you know, because staff or whatever they might not be. But they generally, that, that one short guy... You know what I'm saying? He is, I have seen him 50 times since I moved back to Buffalo. Um, Mike Mike Desmond? Yes. And, and, and so, you know, WBFO is, is not a slight to them, but what I'm saying is I've been sending out press releases to all these networks. And so, again, it's a good thing where we are now, but the the it's important to understand that every there doesn't there shouldn't have to be a tragedy for the community to get listened to. You're absolutely right. You're yeah. absolutely right. And I don't think any any movement that's out there wants that galvanizing moment um, because it is generally speaking rooted in some massive tragedy. But 
responsiveness of government, responsiveness of elected leaders, responsiveness, even as a cohesive unit, doesn't really happen. I mean, we will point certainly to May 14th. And then beyond that, it's not like May 14th was the first mass shooting in the country. That's right. And yet still here we are. We're having conversations about guns and about weapons and about the ability for certain people to have weapons and certain people not to have weapons and and so on and so forth. Um, Can I say something about that? Well, go ahead. Finish your question. Finish your question. Finish your statement. I'm sorry. Okay. That's right. No, I just want to talk about the guns. I was going to say something about that, but I'll wait. Okay. So my point really with that is that, you know, here it is. There's an issue over mental health and guns, people who can have guns, people who shouldn't have guns, all of this stuff. And we can barely come together as a country, as a community, as a nation to say, you know what, please stop shooting kids in school. I mean, certainly people were saying that since Columbine. Absolutely. And we're still having that conversation today. A week and a half after May 14th, people shooting school in schools, killing students, killing children. People are out there killing children, and still we can't come together about that. So I appreciate certainly that, you know, movements have been out there. Movements are out there. But how do you bring a community together Without, I don't know what, I'm not entirely certain what all else other than shooting people in a grocery store and shooting elementary school kids one can do to galvanize people about guns. And speaking of guns, yes. (laughs) So I want to say that, again, these moments are an opportunity to bring people together and the collective tragedy and the collective trauma that communities feel um, but there's other ways to bring people together too. So like when there's consistent work going on, right? Because what happens with these moments is they happen in waves. So when May 14th, you know, first happens, everybody's here. We got every national news network. We got Al Sharpton. We got this and that. We got blah, blah, blah. all these companies giving money. The bills players make their first trip to Jefferson and all this stuff happens. And it's all nice and photo opt and everybody's talking about it on every news. But after 10 days, a couple news cycles on to the next thing. And so the problem is when, yes, people react to something that happens, there's no long lasting plan or response what generally happens is we go back to normal. Eventually that energy and fervor fades and we go back to normal and go back to doing nothing and being apathetic until the next thing happens. And it it just kind of, as somebody who is kind of a thread, a consistent thread through this, you kind of see these waves happening. You just see these waves and it's frustrating because it's like you're trying to, trying to make a difference and then something happens. Everybody all of a sudden cares and all this money comes and all of this attention to me and then it fades 
and then it, and then it, it comes and then it fades, you know. And so because of that, it makes it it, it feels like it's something's going to change. But if there's no policy change, there is no change. Like unless there's real legislation, then it's just talk. It's just it's just it's just Fugazi. It's like, you know, oh, we are, you know, everybody's all locked in. Everybody wants to, you know, they're wearing the T-shirts and they're having prayer vigils and all of this stuff. And I, I, we're sending our thoughts and prayers from Canada and, you know, all of this stuff. But. After now it's what August ninth. Uh, How many people are still talking about it? How many people are still talking about mental health and guns locally? How many people are still? Where's the legislation? Oh, you, of course, you guys, you know. But you know, where's the legislation that's going to prevent this type of thing from happening again, right? And I know that there, New York State is trying to pass, has passed some new gun laws. I don't know if those actually will stop would stop something like this. Um, but that effort is good. But we need substantial changes. And everybody knows that. Right. Like the question is, is gun our gun rights a liberty that blah, 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 blah. That's, you know, Second Amendment. Right. Second Amendment doesn't mean you get to own rocket launchers, though. Right. Also like, a good point. So like the right to bear arms has limits. I have used every weapon that this country makes. Every high-powered rifle that you can use, we were trained on, okay? And let me tell you something. There is no reason a civilian should have an M16, an M4, any type of AR uh, assault rifle. There's just no reason. They are anti-squad, anti-vehicle weapons. They are not meant for us. Because even if you're like, I got to protect my home, if you fire a round, uh, you know, 5.5 millimeter round, for whatever, from an M16, it's going to rip through your the wall of your house into the next house. It's not the type of weapon that what you use to protect your home. It's not the type of weapon you use to hunt. It is a weapon that is designed to kill and destroy large numbers of people. There's not a reason that a civilian should have access. And when they wrote the Declaration of Independence, when they passed the Bill of Rights, they did not intend for civilians to have armored carrier helicopters you know, with 50 cows hanging off the side, right? Because that's arms, right? They did not, that is not the intention. It was the right for you to protect your home. That is what they meant. Or to protect your neighborhood or your community from an oppressive government, but not to to have the access to at any time mow down innocent people. That is not what that meant. So I don't, I'm not going to get on that. That's not what we talk about today. But I just, I feel like it's all, like all of the energy around fighting oppression, fighting white supremacy is really positive. It's really good. We're seeing it from your station, being leaders in this, giving a voice to community, and that is really, really good. But as you all can see, because you've been doing it so much, you see the people who you started with starting to fade out of the work of lifting up the voices of the community, of finding ways to bring light to this really dark thing of white supremacy and oppression that we see really manifesting in all types of uh, parts of our lives, right? You see that, like, there's really only a couple people still taking leadership on this. <laughs> we are really, you know, and, and I guess that gives you more value because you're holding on. <laughs> like, you're, you guys are like, we're still, we're going to keep this going. We, we have a, we felt, we felt a mission, a calling to do something. And that's Absolutely. great. But what part does resiliency play in that activism that has been going on before May 14th, after May 14th, next year, two years ago? What, how do you look at an activist and say to them, okay, now do it again? Mm, okay, great. now do it again. Great question. So 
first of all, a lot of our local activists have been the ones that have been working really hard have been really consistent on their issues. So, like, we have some organizations and some activists who just, I mean, they inspired me when I first moved back to Buffalo uh, in 20, at the end of 2015. Some of these activists, were they, they were doing it back then. You know, and I know that's not, like, decades ago, but when I moved back here, I saw them doing same things they fighting they were fighting for then. They were working on They're still working on now. And they've, they've shown growth and improvement. Mm-hmm. So what I would say to them is look at where you started or look at where you were five years ago and the improvements that you have made in our community, whether it be housing, whether it be, you know, climate, whether it be, you know, whatever, neighborhoods, voices, communities, black clubs, whatever. Look at the progress that you've made. That's what I would say for them to be more resilient. But... The challenge is we have this community of activists who they are going to fight for their cause, whether they paid or not. They are going to organize because they're passionate about an issue. But the problem is when there's a problem like this, there's a challenge like May 14th, something foundations want to do something. Mm-hmm. Right. Companies want to do something and they don't have the manpower to go be activists. That's not their lane. They might sell cars. Right. So that's not their their space. But they got money. And so they said, we'll, we'll put some money behind some groups. The problem is when they put the money behind the groups, they put it behind the named groups, the big name. I won't name none now because I already did too much in this interview. But they put them behind those more traditional organizations who actually are no longer doing the groundwork, grassroots and grass tops level organizing to create change because they're receiving so much money from so many different places. They don't want to rock the boat too much and lose that grant funding. So now we've got these big name, you know, organizations, you know, all and it's like a bunch of them. And they do. It's not that they don't do good work. They're avoiding controversial work. Right. When you okay. stand strong. When you stand, whatever your side of any issue, when you really put your feet in the sand and say, this is the line, we are going to fight for this till we win. There's pushback. No matter what side of either issue you are, there is resistance to that stance. And the more resistance you get, the more in jeopardy your funding is. So would you say that these organizations are gatekeepers? Yeah, I don't use that type of language. Those are like new buzzwords now, like the gatekeepers and like stuff like, no, they're not bad words. I just don't, I say there are some organizations that are doing real work in this community and it will be really good to seize funding and resources get to them as opposed to only going to organizations that have a longer, you know, reputation of, or, or they did things in the past and now, you know what I mean? And, and again, it's not about one or the other. We really need a partnership because some of these younger organizations or newer organizations or newer activists, they don't have the organizational structure to receive a million-dollar grant like organization ABC does who has the vice president, the fiscal officer, the HR department. has. You know what I mean? So it can be more of a partnership space. But what the problem is when you have so much bureaucracy and you, you're working so hard to protect the brand against controversy, now when you have, let's say, a county legislator or a school board member or a state lawmaker say, hey, 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 I, don't, I, I, I need you to back off that. Or, oh, don't push me hard on that. Don't go on the news and talk about me. If, you get, if they control your funding, if they can influence your ability to get funding, you're more apt to listen to that because you got more to lose. 
Well, what happens is now we're doing soft advocacy. Now, instead of doing a John Lewis voter registration effort where we door to door, where we fighting our own party on voter suppression and the tactics they use to undermine candidates. Instead of doing that, now we just set up a table at the library and say we're doing voter registration. Right. Because that's safer. There's no controversy there. Right. Where we we see the problem, but there's controversy to meet that, to confront that. So it's a big kind of web of challenges. And again, that voter registration booth at the library is not a bad thing because you might register 50 people to vote that week. Absolutely. So that's not a bad thing. But the larger problem is people couldn't switch parties you know, prior to a few years ago, they couldn't switch their party. It would take like you had to wait a full election cycle because when people would register to vote at 16, 17, whenever they got their license, they didn't pick a party. So they left it blank. So we got thousands of people in Buffalo who registered are blank. So they can't vote in a Democratic primary. Mm-hmm. Right. And the Democratic primary in the city is really the election in 99 percent of the time. So if you can't vote in the primary, you're like, I'm going to vote in November. I vote. You think you voting, but you're not actually voting. You're voting one versus nobody, one versus nobody, judge versus nobody. Nobody, candidate versus nobody. That's not a real voice. Your voice was the primary, but you can't vote because you registered blank and you can't switch your party until the next year. The next year. So it's a convoluted system. But taking that on means taking on heavy hitters. And that means they may not buying a table at your reception this year. That means they're not sponsoring your whatever gala. Right. And so there's this challenge. There's this dance. And again, uh, like I said, registering those 50 people at that library is good. That's 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 progress. That's a step forward, you know. But we need leaps and bounds. We need big steps forward to really, you know, give voice and power to regular people in the community. I know that was like a whole tangent, but that's okay. Um, let's talk resiliency and racism specifically. How do you and how did you process all of the events that came before what happened on May 14th the events that continue on how how as a black man do you process all of that you know it's it's one thing for a tragedy to happen in this country as a black man so somebody gets you know, some, you know there's a shooting at a church in South Carolina Right. So in Charleston and you just like, what? It just hits you like, dang, that's it's horrible. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just it's, you don't have words for how terrible that is. But you're able to go to work the next day. Maybe you need a day or you need an hour. You need to, you know, vent a little bit, have some conversations, you know, that type deal. But you're able to go to work the next day. You're able to that weekend go out with your friends. You know, you're able to, you know, it's terrible, but you Felt it, but it didn't hit you, hit you. But when it happens down the street, (laughs) like, it hits so different where it's like, I knew this person. This person was my cousin. One Mm -hmm. of the victims was my cousin. This person was my wife's first boss. This, You know, and it's just like, it, it hit, number one, the victims themselves, the families, these amazing people who were just living their life, who were, you know, victimized, is horrible. But then you also say, well, my mom goes to that tops. Absolutely. My dad goes there every single week. My dad goes to that tops. 
um, you know, so it's now it adds a sense of fear. So I say resilient. If we're talking resilience, Mm -hmm. the thing from May 14th that affected me personally the most was it gave fear and uncertainty to daily tasks. Right. If you can be targeted and hunted at tops on Jefferson, there is no defense for that. There's nothing you can do that can prepare you to be ready for that. Right. People say, oh, more people need guns, need handguns. The boy, the boy who was shooting him had body armor. He had three quarter inch chest plate body armor. The handgun bullet ain't going through that. You see what I'm saying? So there's nothing you can do to prepare for that type of violence on a normal day going to get some strawberries from tops. That is the definition of terror. That's it. hundred percent. It is a terroristic act designed and built to instill fear, fear Absolutely. into a community. And, and, and that, that ma'am, to me, the thing that affected me the most was now, do I let my wife go get groceries still? Because she likes to go on the top. We got we live over closer to the tops on um, Kensington up in Harlem. Or, uh-huh. you know, so she that's she where she goes, you know. So I'm like, do I let her keep going there? Should I be the one to go now? Do I let my daughter walk to Family Dollar by herself now? She's a teenager, but, you know, is that okay now? Like, so now I got doubt. It's like it was right before Juneteenth. Do I take my family to Juneteenth? Uh-huh. So now all of a sudden there's this extra layer of fear and anxiety. And what I had to process for me, which helped, is I refuse to live my life in fear. I just refuse to. I'm a spiritual person. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I am a believer that all you can do is do your absolute best and live a life of, of love and light. And if something terrible is to happen, it's just going to happen. Right. We do everything we can activism wise to, to stop it. All of that. You know, we do everything we can to be vigilant and be safe. But at the end of the day, there are going to be some terrible things happening. And I can't let that change me having joy and light in my life. I can't live every day in fear and in terror of what horribly heinous crime could be committed against me or my family randomly at a at just a normal spot. And it I, I struggled with that for a few days, but it was it it took a few days for me to get to like, you know what, Duncan? I'm not going to live like this. I'm not going to live sheltered because some crazy white supremacist terrorist came from another city and did something horrible to some very innocent people. I'm not going to live he don't get to win over my life for the next five years and next whatever. You know what I mean? And so, okay, but what are you going to tell granny who refuses to leave their house, who won't go even past the tops on Jefferson? Mm-hmm. What are you telling them? What are you telling the elderly? What are you telling any of these people who are still hurting, who are still terrorized? It's, I mean, You talk about resiliency. What do you say to somebody to get them to be more resilient? I don't, I mean, there are people out there who have basically said they will never step foot in that tops again, period. Doesn't matter what it looks like now, how renovated it, doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. They will never go in there again. And there are people who won't go grocery shopping. So, you know, that's real. You know Absolutely. I mean? You know, that, that that's, that's as real as it gets right there. So for some people, I'll say, you know, they got an app called Instacart where you can, you know, <laughs> order your groceries. Um, 
But like, I have a grandmother. She's ninety. She just turned ninety three last Friday. Happy birthday to and, her. her, Mavis Kirkwood. And she was born. And she was. We were talking the other day. She was born in nineteen twenty nine. And I told her, I said, Grandma, you've lived three lifetimes. You know what I mean? You have seen the Second World War, Jim Crow South. You've seen, uh, you know, the Civil Rights Movement. You've seen King assassinated, JFK assassinated, Malcolm X assassinated. You lived through the 80s, the 90s, the crack epidemic. You've lived through everything, and you built a life and a family. You know, what do you see when you look at the world? You know, and she said, we have a lot more, like, technology. She's just that tech, you know. There's a, a lot more technology. Wait. Your 90-year-old grandmother is into tech? No, not at all. Oh. <laughs> she still got a box TV, a big old box TV, not at all. But she was just she was uh, saying right. she was just saying we got a lot more technology, a lot more stuff, nicer TVs, all of this stuff. But in a lot of ways, the same type of stuff she saw in the 20s and the 30s and the 40s, we're seeing now. Um and she said all you can do is, you know, be grateful for your family, be grateful for what you got and pray. And um you know, that's that's the era that she came from, and that's what she believes. And it's like, it's challenging because there was a time in our country where I think a lot of people believed that the racists were just die off from old age. Like the, the remnants of the people who were, you know, post-Reconstruction or Jim Crow, like that era of people would just die out because they're just old and that, that would pass. Mm-hmm. And that, that hate would just evaporate as times changed. And what we're seeing is that's not happening. Not not even a little bit. Not even remotely. <laughs> not even remotely. And that they're passing down these legacies of hatred, which is why a lot of people believe they're so anti-critical race theory being taught in classrooms. Because if people really learned how they treated black people in this country, they would also realize that those are their family members. Mm-hmm. Right. They, they would have to feel the shame that comes with knowing their family was a part of this and they're benefiting from this. The people in those black and white pictures, because you ever wonder why it's a whole nother tangent. But you ever wonder why the civil rights pictures in textbooks are in black and white? Like you see Martin Luther King speaking is always black and white in the Washington Monument. Right. They had color cameras back then. They could take pictures in color. Right. He was only assassinated like 50 years ago. You know what I'm saying? So it's not like they didn't have the, op- the access to color. It's because they, there's a design to want it to feel like it was a long time ago. Right? It wants to, they, there's, a de- okay. there's a desire to make it seem like that was so distant in our past as opposed to just a generation ago. And, and if you know that that's just a generation ago, you know that it's not over now. And we're seeing it, to your point, manifest at May 14th, every other shooting one after another. There is a problem in this country. There is a, a vile hatred that pervades this country in everything we see, every industry. We can see it. We can feel it. You as a person of color, I know you have felt it in your career to get to this high level. You've had to deal with some stuff. It is real. Okay. The hope is that we live in a time where at least now it ain't a secret. Okay. Okay. So we... When something is no longer a secret, it's going to be ugly to fight through and figure out ways to move forward. But at least we know what we need to address instead of being able to pretend like everything is like that time has passed where white people were like, oh, if you just comply with the officer, it's all good. I don't know what the problem is. Right. (laughs) That time is over because we have video evidence time after time of seeing what's going on. Right. And so. As people are more exposed to things, they can make different choices. You can say, oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know you experienced that. I didn't know that was real. I never knew that. Like, I I, I just, 
I have to believe, I just have to believe that as we as black people continue to grow our communities, try to band together, try to work together, mm-hmm. uh, as we get allies, I hate the term allies so much, um, but as we get people who want to stand with us and people who see finally have seen the light of what's wrong and want to stand with us, that we can at least create a society. Like Martin Luther King says, you can't legislate people's hearts, mm-hmm. you, but you can pass laws and policies that make it where people can't openly discriminate against other people and openly harm or, or go out and kill or, or whatever with no repercussions. And so I can only hope that we're moving in that direction. And I do see that with a lot of, you know, non-black people and the the, the energy they have of wanting to do better uh, and wanting to be together and have tough conversations from a place of love. Um, but it's hard. You know what I mean? It, like all of this stuff we deal with is heavy. You know what I mean? Like sometimes yes. you don't even want to turn the news on because it's just like, you know, it's another. I mean, you're a journalist. OK, but. You know, so you know, it's to the point where you can sometimes you just want to check out because it's like tragedy, 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 crime in your community, crime, tragedy, tragedy, and it's just like never ending, never ending. And it's a certain point you just need a mental break. It can be exhausting, you know. That's part of resiliency, certainly. Hundred percent. And my thing to people on like, if you ask me, Duncan, what's a resilience tip? Like, what's a tip to for people? We're gonna get to that oh. in just a second. All right. I have. Another difficult question for you, though. Do you think that racists, white supremacists, are not resilient? Hmm. Great question. Um, I think, unfortunately... People who have people who have decided to embrace hatred in a lot of ways are resilient in holding on to that hatred and their worldview. And that's what makes it difficult. It's like they are rolling with their worldview, you know, dread, you know, rooted in hatred and biased and and they you know they just keep it going against and and sometimes it's illogical resilience right Mm -hmm. like faced with all information and all facts they just will just ignore all logic just to hold on to you know a really negative and hateful you know worldview and one could say that that means that they aren't resilient Right. Mm-hmm. They don't have the ability to let things go or let things pass. They are holding on to that hate, which then fuels their ideology. Absolutely. So it, it depends on if you look at resilience. I'm sorry. Um, it depends on if you look at resilience as a, as a growth thing. Or just the ability to bounce back 
from setbacks and challenges, right? Mm-hmm. To, to meet resistance and keep going. If you look at it as just meet resistance and keep going, I would say, yes, unfortunately, they are resilient. That hatred that pervades those, those circles is resilient. But if you look at resilience, to your point, as a growth thing, as a way to be better and make the people around you better, then absolutely they're not. You know what I mean? Uh, absolutely they're not. Because if you're totally present, and, and presence is really a big part of resilience. Um, like, it's a huge part. That's the number one thing I work with young people on is, like, be in the moment. If you're in the moment with another person, there is no way you are somehow thinking that you hate this person because of what happened 50 years ago or between your family and their – or blah, blah, blah. Or 200 years ago, they said these people were less than, so you just believe that. Or, or, or you saw something on the news and you didn't like that they said this in their rap song or what Like – if you're holding on to that, you're not being present. But if you are in the space with a person and you're totally present with another person, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, anything, you will connect with another person. Right. Even like even if you don't, you know, even if you don't like them or know their history, whatever. Like so when I was in basic training, I had a, my, you get a battle buddy. As soon as you go to basic training, everybody mm-hmm. gets paired with somebody else. So the whole time you and this other person are like connected at the hip. Mine was this white guy from Kansas. He was as redneck as you can get. His name was Pullman, all right? I mean, he had never been around a black person in his whole life. He was a hunter. He Everything you would imagine from somebody who lives in the country in Kansas, this was him. Okay. And one day we were sitting on a Humvee. It's like hours. We don't got nothing else to do. We're just there with each other talking. And I probably had one of some of the best conversations about race, uh, about inclusion, about, about diversity ever, about from the other side. Mm-hmm. Understanding what they see, what they hear when they when they hear this conversation. Right. And so it helped me to learn. So now when I work with people, I can work with black people, I can work with white people, I can work with professionals, I can work with country folks, I can work with city folks, I can work with every folks, because I understand where they're starting from in their mindset. So when I work with people, sometimes schools will bring me in to come talk to their kids about racism mm-hmm. and about you know, how to build an inclusive space. I understand how to talk to them so that they can start to open their mind. I think that if you have a real vulnerable, honest conversation with anybody, you can start to understand them and it will become something that changes both of you. And um, and so it's a, it's a challenge because, again, left in their echo chambers, it just builds up that hatred and their, those worldviews that are just so toxic and destructive. So we have... Just a few minutes left. What tips would you give to help people who are in the community who are still grieving, who are still hurting, who are still mourning, um, and who find themselves stuck? You know, I would give, I will first say that you have every right to feel that way. And that you shouldn't, in in no way should you feel like you are have done something wrong because you're struggling in this moment and in this time and space in your life. Uh, it is okay to have feelings. It's okay to hurt. It's okay to be frustrated. Um, but it's I would push back that it's not okay to be stuck in those feelings, mm-hmm. right? That it's have the feelings, acknowledge them. If you need a day, you need a week, you do what you got to do to take care of yourself. But then you have to get back to living your life. So the first thing is presence. I tell everybody when I work with them, when you start your day, when you wake up, the first thing you should do 
is listen to some music. Whatever your favorite song is, put your favorite song on. Then maybe read a little bit, right? Don't get on social. Don't turn the news on. First, just read something. Well, I mean, turn on WBFO. Absolutely, do. That's the third thing. Oh, okay. Then, because after that, you want to connect to something that's going on in your community. Blah blah blah. Right. But I tell people, then after you do that, make a list for the day. Make a to-do list. What do you need to get done today? What would you like to get done today? Right? Because in that moment, you got good energy. You're you're in a good space. You're right. Write out what you need to do. So then as the day draws on and things come in your way, cross currents hit, frustration hits, energy hits, negative stuff hits, whatever. You see something on news that might you know, mess trigger you, family calls, whatever. You still got the list of stuff. Mm-hmm. You can always refer back to your agenda. This is what I'm going to do today. So that at a certain point you can look and feel accomplished. You will have made progress even when it hurts, even when you're tired. You still made progress on things you need to. So you didn't get a chance to stay stuck in whatever space that you, mental space you were in. Uh, there's also an exercise I use. I, I see you give me the look. All right. Uh, so also take a moment to identify three good things that have happened in the last 24 hours. It's an exercise called Hunt the Good Stuff. It builds gratitude, overcomes the negativity bias. Duncan Kirkwood, thank you so much for joining us. This was a fantastic conversation. Um, we want to hear from you. You can use the Talk to Us feature on the WBFO app to leave us a message or send comments and questions via Twitter or email. Thank you for listening to Buffalo What's Next. We'll be back tomorrow. That's our promise to you here at WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown, your NPR station.